Greenleft Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Greenleft Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for um, our program today, you have myself, Jacob, as your presenter today, and... And Felix. How are you going? So Felix is going to be joining me as my co-presenter today. And before I go into our um, t- into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation, we like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. And more importantly, um, Green Left um, Radio and FreeCR um, always stands unconditionally with Indigenous people and in supporting their struggles for decolonisation and sovereignty. Okay, now I guess um, maybe to kind of start off, I guess a bit of a kind of discussion um, give a bit of kind of a quick kind of update, I guess, on some of the current sort of developments, because I guess one of the kind of things that has been dominating politics, well, for the past several months uh, in Australia, has been the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID pandemic? What's this? Oh, yeah. Haven't you been living? You've been living under a rock, Felix. Jeez, I need to get into up with the news. <laughs> well, um, some of the kind of recent sort of news on that is um, New South Wales yesterday reached, I think, over a thousand kind of daily cases, um, which is um, looking pretty um, well. Like it's been like this for like the past several weeks. Um, the New South Wales outbreak is clearly out of control. I mean, on the positive side of this is not necessarily a positive, but this is sort of a testament to um, to the um, to the success of the vaccinations. The death rate has been quite low relative to what would have happened um, last year. Like, for example, if this were would have happened um, last year in terms of no vaccine, etc. Yeah, well, similar to uh, in in Melbourne, of course, we know all about this. We got up to in the seven hundreds. Last year, and the deaths. I remember the deaths. We get these um, notifications every every day. You get ten or fifteen deaths at the peak of it, and they're they're not having that in New South Wales at yeah, the moment because of, and that is because of um, the existence of the COVID nineteen vaccination, which plays, I guess, a major role in reducing hospitalisation and, of course, reducing deaths. More importantly, but on the other hand, I guess. um, There has been a kind of a lot of kind of debate and discussion about this, especially around this whole discussion around the Doherty report about this question around whether, you know, we um, whether we um, whether Australia can reopen um, and or live with COVID. And in fact, Gladius um, has been sort of saying that, you know, New South Wales, in the context of them losing 
um, control of um, of the COVID nineteen of a COVID nineteen outbreak in their state is well, we're going to have to is sort of retreating to this. We've got to live with kind of COVID kind of perspective, and I guess one of the sort of things about that is, I think there's a there's quite I think the the fact that the government is has clearly failed um, to control this kind of outbreak. And the fact that they're just going to retreating to, oh, yes, we're just going to have to live with COVID. Um, I mean, of course, there is obviously like the question of, you know, um, there is obviously this kind of question of how sustainable, you know, the, um, that the, um, the government can remain COVID free. But in the context of low vaccination rates, uh, in the context of the fact that COVID-19, um, even in lockdown New South Wales, with hundreds of cases, um, is still um, reaching um, its capacity of ICU beds, um, for example. The fact that even the Victoria healthcare system is getting stretched, even in the context of a heavy kind of lockdown, means that I think that any sort of discussion of, um, of living with COVID is a bit fallacious in the context of the fact that, yes, while it is true that the, co- the existence of the COVID vaccination breaks the link in terms of um, deaths and hospitalizations, i.e. Redu- reduces it markedly, it still doesn't deal with the fundamental issue that COVID is a highly transmittable disease um, and it can, and increases exponentially. And of course, it's gotten even worse with the appearance of the Delta variant. And what that kind of leads to is this overloading of the, of the healthcare system. Yeah. It seems to be it taking a, like, we don't know the full details yet, but it looks like they're taking a massive gamble. So there are all the, there are lots of different studies that have come out of, about how an outbreak, an out of control outbreak is going to affect the health system. And the Doherty's, is one of them. And, you know, from what I've read, there's a lot of nuance to it and there's a lot of caveats and everything. And then both Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian have grabbed onto it, just ignored all of the caveats and just said, okay, this is our pathway out of out of here. We don't have to lock down, you know. But uh, <laughs> modelling does suggest there could be up to 25,000 deaths, you know, <laughs> if... If it gets out of control, even with the vaccinations that we've got, because think of it, if you think about 70% of the population of adults, eligible adults being vaccinated, that's like 55% of all people. And that's nowhere near enough to get herd immunity. And think about all the people that don't get vaccinated. They can't get vaccinated. They're, you know, children, people with existing health conditions. And not to mention the fact that, like, vaccination is not 100%. It's 95% or 90%, but yeah, it's hundreds or thousands of people will get sick and die, you know, if the, if COVID is allowed to just spread throughout the community without any kind of restrictions. Hmm. And yeah, and I think one kind of comment I kind of want, want to add onto that is I think in terms of like, kind of like the end game of this kind of COVID kind of pandemic, thinking a bit big picture, in terms of the context, I guess, of where we're kind of at right now with this outbreak in New South Wales. And of course, in Victoria, we're still kind of struggling actually to contain um, the, um, the current sort of outbreak right now, even in the context of a very strict lockdown. Cases actually have 
appeared to have been increasing, but also decreasing and increasing. But I mean, it's not look just to, for the information from my reading of the statistics, what's happening with Twitter is probably not as bad as people would think. In fact, the the um the barrier um the barrier between sort of like say the percentage of mystery cases, the ratio of mystery cases to cases found linked to the outbreak, that sort of gap is actually gradually kind of decreasing over time. So that's a positive thing. I mean, the main kind of issue I think is it's possible that there's going to be an extension of the lockdown after having we've been oh, definitely yeah. um, probably after probably a one week to two weeks potentially. I hope so. Um, <laughs> I hope it's just that. So that's sort of where kind of things are kind of at there. But I guess in terms of like this sort of um, in terms of what the Australian government could have done um, could have been doing in terms of the benefit of kind of hindsight is what's quite clear. I think some of the one of the lessons I think is. You know, with how fast New South Wales and Victoria is vaccinating people right now in response to this outbreak, what, the question should be asked, why wasn't the government doing this in peacetime, i.e. when we're in, <laughs> we weren't locked down in freedom? Why, oh, wasn't, yeah. why weren't they making this big push to get people vaccinated? Why weren't they setting vaccination hubs? Why weren't Absolutely. they doing... Absolutely. This is their big failure. Like, obviously, the hotel quarantine, that's a massive failure. And just not prioritising the vaccination and sending all those incredible mixed messages, like at the AstraZeneca messaging, just out of control. Like, it just made no sense all over the place. This is the government's, like, main job, the federal government. And they, you know, they just totally flood this opportunity. And, of course, all the talk now about opening up and we can live with the virus, this is all just a distraction about the incredible failures that they had earlier in the year. They just want people to forget about that and to say, oh, no, we can get around it. This is how we'll, we'll, mm. we'll just live with it. Mm. And I'm not sure, you know, just jumping ahead a little bit here, I just want to point out that this is definitely a foretaste of climate catastrophe. This is exactly what's going to happen. They're going to say, don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. We've got our net zero by 2050, you know, that's legislated. This is all we need to do. Everything's fine. Just chill out. And then all of a sudden, the natural, natural in inverted commas, disasters are going to get worse and worse and worse. And they're going to say, oh, we just got to live with it. You know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, well, I can sort of just imagine what, um, in, in terms of the context of a climate catastrophe, you could have this situation where, let's say, Woolworths and Coles gradually over time, less fresh fruit or vegetable, particular fresh fruit and vegetables will become less available. That's kind of like something, it will sort of gradually uh, happen. Yeah. Uh, gradually there'll be certain products that will be less available. And then of course you'll be just here, the government just pretending, oh, nothing's going wrong. Oh, we'll make up for it by just importing or, um, um, some fresh fruit and vegetables, maybe from some global South country. We'll just bring it here to Australia. So, um, so Australia can have fresh capsicum or or something i mean i haven't mm. i haven't looked into sort of the science of what uh, yeah I, I think that's yeah that, that's a really good way of thinking about it it'll just like erode the edges and then it'll happen so gradually that we won't necessarily notice and then one day we'll look back and just think hang on we have lost so much <laughs> yeah. and i think that's enough going back to i think the second kind of um thing that the government could have done in the lead up to um in in terms of before this kind of outbreak got out of control is basically, I mean, the government should have actually just acted as if co- a COVID outbreak could have hap- could happen at any time. So yeah. that could have um, that could have case. that could have given them the incentive to say um, rapidly expand um, the healthcare system and its and its capacity in across all the different states. 
the other thing could have been um, in terms of um, essential kind of workplaces. Like, for example, we have all this information on which workplaces have to be shut down, which workplaces have to remain open in the context of a strict lockdown in response to an outbreak. They could have been implementing all the sort of protections and structures that needed to be in place to kind of deal with an outbreak. But really, I think... The government basically essentially got complicit and essentially just thought that we could just um, escape this virus by just keeping our borders closed indefinitely. But at the same time, there's yeah, a bit of a good at it. <laughs> but there's a there's a contradiction with that too because ultimately, while we we li- while we live in in Australia, which is like very well known for its tight border regime, militarized kind of borders, ultimately it's in the interest of the capitalist class to open the borders anyway. In fact, we're even hearing Qantas um, talking about how, well, we're going to have international flights before December. Yeah, um, they, or, they lost $1.8 billion and they're not planning on losing another. Yeah, so it's sort of like there's all these sort of complex, I think, kind of contradictions, I think, that is kind of revealing, I think, about the inequality of society. And I guess I think it's, I think it's a big tragedy, I think, that we're going to be, I think it's looking like, I'm mean, just from the talk in, um, that's happening in New South Wales, they're gradually trying to prepare for a bit of a phase sort of reopening, i.e. they're going to sort of start off with sort of restrictions kind of ease for people who are fully vaccinated. Now, of course, this is what, in the end, what countries like the United States and the UK did. But I think, you know, it's actually easy to imagine in the context of Australia's kind of success in containing the pandemic earlier that we probably could have had a, a, re-op- a, a kind of reopening with and a much more positive kind of way. Like, for example, most of the states we could have reopened or gradually eased restrictions with, say, 80% vaccination um, rate, Um in the context of, say, zero kind of cases. And, of course, some of the restrictions, as the sort of Doherty kind of monitoring kind of suggests, um, you know, we could have had restrictions sort of in place, etc., to prevent sort of future sort of outbreaks. And then, of course, gradually we would have gone into a much sort of higher rate of vaccination, especially amongst children, um, that would have then allowed for even kind of more restrictions to be eased. So, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, like, you can easily paint a picture, I think, of how it should have happened if... This is a massive if the government was not just completely short-term thinking and beholden to business interests. Like at every step you can see, when they have to make a, a they don't they don't have any strategic planning over the long term. They think in the immediate right now, and in every just every case, they think what is better for business. And you know, like oh, not locking down. Okay, then we'll do that. Okay, then do we hand out uh, pandemic relief? No, if it's going to go to the people yes if it can prop up businesses that are failing every step has been for businesses and not for people Mm. and not for the long-term planning of how to manage this crisis with minimum deaths and injuries yeah so i think it's 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 i i'm definitely convinced just from reading one of the latest articles that you know unless there is i mean unless there is some real kind of opposition um it is looking likely that we are sort of gradually being prepared for a sort of gradual kind of reopening, um, and it's going to start in a sort of similar way to how the new, um, how the US and the UK gradually ease restrictions, which will be in the context of having restrictions for people who are not vaccinated, but for people who are vaccinated, there's a certain level of easing restrictions. Now, yeah, that's 
it's just going to be, I think, kind of the reality. But I think, you know, I think it's important, you know, as left-wing and socialists to actually point out that there could have been an alternative to this. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the tragic thing is... Um, is because of the government's kind of actions, there's going to be unnecessary deaths, hospitalizations, um, as a result of this. And I think, you know, the alternative was we could have had a much better kind of return to normal or return to some COVID normal with far, with, with minimal deaths and hospitalizations if the government was actually serious about planning, um, and addressing the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I might just go play um, a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I just thought would play, um, would use a bit of an opportunity to play a bit of a quick song. I'm going to play poetry by text um, by Alec, who, um, which is by Indigenous singer-songwriter Alice Skye.
All right, you're listening to um, Green Left Radio, and you were just listening to Poetry by Text by Alex Skye. Now, for the next part of the program, uh, I'm going to be playing a recording of a talk by Anthony Kelly. He did this talk. Um, Anthony Kelly is a long-time kind of activist with the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, and he recently gave uh, a talk at a public forum um, that was organised by Green Left um, on Tuesday, August 24th, titled COVID-19 the um, pandemic, the state and the far right. And in this kind of talk, um, Anthony Kelly kind of gives a bit of an overview of some of the elements that kind of make up this sort of anti-lockdown far-right movement that's sort of currently kind of having a bit of growth in this kind of current context of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, yeah, I hope um, listeners ha- um, enjoy. And, um, yeah, for the next 15 minutes, we'll be um, having the, um, having a listen to this speech by Anthony Kelly for, from this public forum. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Um, thanks for having me, everyone. My name is Anthony Kelly. Uh, as Mary said, I work with Melbourne Activist Legal, Legal Support and a whole range of other groups. I've been a movement trainer um, and activist for some 30 years or so. Um, but, and I'm also coming to you from uh, Wurundjeri land, uh, unceded and um, very beautiful country here. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present as well. Um, it's uh, incredibly frustrating at the moment to be an activist. Hey, I'm sure all of us would like to be out in the, on the streets. Um, and it's somewhat disconcerting, if not incredibly frustrating, that um, large contingents of far-right um, organising is happening in the streets, um, you know, and, and uh, we're sitting home dutifully um, in acts of human solidarity, supporting each other to make sure that we're, um, we're safe and the vulnerable in our community are safe. 
So, um, but it is just, it is difficult to position ourselves and to be, um, um, to be active at this particular time in this, in this pandemic. So it's, uh, that's one of the challenges ahead of us. Um, so I am by no means an expert on anti-fascist organizing or research. I would like to acknowledge and pay homage to the, teams of uh, anti-fascist researchers that for many decades have been keeping tabs on uh, white nationalists, neo-Nazis and other groupings uh, and groupsicles around Australia uh, and alerting us to their danger and their influence. Um, and you've probably seen some of the um, fantastic work that's been exposed just recently by uh, White Rose Society and other researchers that's culminated in a, quite a massive um, uh, age, Sydney Morning Herald and 60 Minutes Expose. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that further on, but the, the, um, their work, uh, I'm largely drawing on. So, um, and some of this will be familiar with you, of course. The anti-lockdown movement that we're seeing rise up in Sydney, Melbourne, WA, in other parts, and also up in northern New South Wales is this weird and strange and of political tendencies. Um, the far right and white nationalists are heavy in there. I'll go into that in a bit more detail. Uh, in Melbourne, we saw the anti-lockdown movement really build on this anti-Victorian Labor, the dictator Dan hashtag that was built and and um, and, and generated. Uh, we're seeing the old uh, One Nation and the various fringe senators surrounding them um, heavily involved. And um, what's sometimes called the big tent conspiracy conspiracists, um, Mary mentioned them as well, but they include the QAnon, but everything you can imagine, the 9-11 truthers and various other uh, conspiracy theories are all playing into this COVID one. And the, the interesting factor with the QAnon networks is that um, the, the, the QAnon conspiracy was very amorphous uh, during the Trump years. It had Trump to, to feed on, but a lot of these same people now have got some very tangible lockdowns and the vaccination programs and everything else to to uh, to link their conspiracy uh, fears and theories with. So, so the COVID and the state response to COVID has provided all this material for these conspiracy networks to to it's, it's provided content for them basically. Uh, the libertarian populists who are often far right, but it's often a term that they, they use to describe themselves. It's, it's used in, in, interchangeably. Um, and I'm not going to go into any definitions of a lot of these anti-vaxxer movements that have been around for as long as vaccinations have been around. And we're seeing some of the, the uh, anti-vaxxer memes and, tro and tropes that were used decades ago uh, reemerge uh, under COVID. Uh, the same sort of disinformation, anti-science, and uh, and um, um, yeah, highly problematic, um, um, yeah, anti-science rhetoric, uh, and, and and you know, acutely dangerous uh, material. Um, the the anti-vaxxer uh, material is much stronger up in northern New South Wales, as you can imagine, um, but there also you can see some of the vergence and, and shifts towards. Uh, right-wing populism, seeing prominent anti-vaxxer organisers, um, some of whom were of the left and, you know, involved in anti-nuclear, anti-US militarism and, for and forest campaigns, uh, are now prominent organisers and are now sharing um, uh, One Nation videos, for instance. Um, so it's really interesting to see some of the shifts to the right in, um, in those sort of communities up in northern New South. 
there's there's been a lot of talk about small business owners and aggrieved people who have been impacted by the the COVID economic by the lockdowns economically and have grievances. Uh, it's hard to know how much and how much involvement are actually uh, by the small business networks and owners. We've seen some, we can see some. Some of them are active, but um, whether they're a prominent part of the anti-lockdown movement, it's quite hard to tell. Uh, there's also a plethora of what I'm what I've sort of called new and emerging activists and online influencers. They're influenced by any of the above political tendencies, but we're seeing them, you know, um, anti-authoritarian, portraying themselves as real rebels and in, right, right in the front lines of some of the anti-lockdown um, movement rallies and so forth. And then, of course, there's those impacted by the lockdowns in various ways. The, the people that Sarah mentioned, um, people who have, um, who have genuine fears and grievances and worries and concerns and who are heavily influenced by the anti-lockdown rep, uh, rhetoric to the point where they're turning up to rallies, they're involved in online debates and they're getting actively involved. And that's the, f- that's the wider, the, the much wider sort of um, worry that we have is how many people are influenced and drawn in to the anti-lockdown movements um, and um, shift upwards into increasingly right-wing uh, re- and reactionary and regressive politics. Um, I'm just going to go down to the next slide. Oops, sorry. Forgive me. One of the more, can people see this one, this slide here? The nationwide, the appropriation of progressive value frames? Yep. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this again is one of the more disconcerting and concerning aspects of the anti-lockdown movement. Um, that they have very successfully appropriated and co-opted a whole range of progressive and left uh, value frames. So, you know, terminology, words and frames that are traditionally on the left and have been built up through um, social justice and, and struggles, basically, over many, many decades and are now being prominently used in banners, in rhetoric and hashtags um, of the anti-lockdown movement. And this is hugely concerning. There's nothing new about it. The right have always co-opted and used freedom of speech and and other um, terms and and um, frames for dec for many many decades. Um, in, in some cases successfully, you know. But we're seeing it really clearly here, and it's one of the most disconcerting and concerning elements of this of this movement. You'll see they've used the people united will never be defeated in one of the posters. Uh, the Assange courage is courageous sort of um, slogan. Um, they're using civil disobedience and resistance as, a, as an operating method and a, and a, a way of saying they, they're um, using a lot of individual and civil rights frames, co-opting the old pro-choice or the incredibly relevant current, um, you know, our bodies, our choice feminist slogan, uh, and generally taking that anti-authoritarianism um, approach, which is attractive to so many people who are concerned, worried, thinking about um, who, and also, you know, capturing many people who would be concerned about um, the various police overreach and um, uh, problematic approaches that we've seen from various states around the world to the, to, um, to COVID. Uh, One of the more concerning um, is this group here that originated in Germany, um, they've co-opted the term white rose 
uh, as a anti-vaccine. They, they basically couch COVID as a as a conspiracy psyop, similar to the pandemic conspiracy. But they're a distortion. They're, their stickers are everywhere. I don't know if you've seen them in Melbourne, um, but in the northern, northern suburbs of Melbourne, they're everywhere in public parks and playgrounds and so forth. Um, but they're a distortion of, of course, the um, the so- um, Sophie Skoll, the White Rose Society, who in in the 1940s bravely resisted um, Nazism in, in Germany itself. She was uh, executed with, along with her brother in 1943. And um, ironically, the White Rose Society, the Je- I've left, the, I put their URL at the bottom here, but these Australian-based anti-fascist research- researchers um, are the genuine White Rose Society, but um, the the sort of the faux White Rose Society that's um, come about under the end of these anti-lockdown movements is a deeply disturbing sort of distortion of this sort of um, legacy. Um, we're seeing extreme far-right neo-Nazi influence uh, and recruitment and organising. These stickers were seen at the most recent uh, August rallies in Melbourne. Um, the Proud Boys, we know, have been active in organising and on the streets. Um, we know through partly through the 60 Minutes Age expose that uh, members of the National Social, Socialist Network, the neo-Nazi group, were um, have been organising regular or weekly anti-lockdown protests back in last year and have been in there this year as well. And the existing networks that arose um, from 2016 to the Reclaim Australia um, surge of white nationalist organising uh, are still around and are heavily driving a lot of the anti-lockdown uh, news and rhetoric. Um, these two here are the two of the more extreme ones, but there's a plethora of other blog sites and pseudo-news services. Uh, those existing networks are really prominent now and are, and are key engines of this of the anti-lockdown movement. Now, one thing to point out here, of course, is that these are quite small groups, the Proud Boys and the NSM and other um, far-right you know, groups, they're incredibly tiny. They don't have the capacity to organise large rallies and internationally and networking. There are um, there are sort of other groups like Reignite Democracy and others who are playing a more prominent building, movement building and mobilising role in, in Melbourne and Sydney uh, and other networks. Um, so we shouldn't overblow their influence, but it's in, um and uh, conflate their influence in terms of organising, but we do know that they're in there. And like all far-right strategy, they they are seeing this movement as a recruitment tool and, and uh, their own uh, building their political capacity. Um, this old Gadsden flag we've seen on the streets of Melbourne. This was from July 24. This And the other picture on the other side is from the Capitol um, uh, assault by... Uh, the far right back in January. Uh, it's an old flag that's got libertarian far right Tea Party uh, aspects. It comes from the American Revolution, basically in the 1700s. But it's um, it's it's just an illustration, one of many illustrations of uh, the many links between the uh, the US far right and the anti lockdown movements here in Australia. Um, the American flags, the Australian sovereign, the red flag, the sovereign citizens. They're also Another political tendency that's um, prominent in the in the movement. Uh, international influences. Some of the um, the global um, coordination of the the uh, anti-lockdown rallies that we've seen recently have 
generated from European and US um, networks. This worldwide demonstration is one, the, the, the free citizens of Cassell. Um, they, they're working under the We Will All Be There hashtag, and they've been generating a lot of the global uh, rallies and coordination. And Project Veritas, which a few people have mentioned, I don't have any specific information about how they're, they're, they're described as a coordinated disinformation campaign in the US. Uh, it's, I'm not sure how much influence they have here in Australia, but they have lots of funding. They're incredibly rich and they fund groups. So it's likely that they're supporting Australian groups and, or, and you know, supporting groups internationally. Um, but they played a prominent role in the pro-Trump um, disinformation uh, machine over in the US. So I'm just going to leave it there just due to time. Um, one of the things that it might be worthwhile um, considering is that this amalgam of um, um, uh, political tendencies uh, is being utilised by the movement to grow and to expand itself, but it's also, of course, an incredible weakness. A weakness. Uh, we are seeing debates within the anti-lockdown movement that's been trying to expel some of the far-right neo-Nazi tendencies uh, in, from some groups. Uh, the Reignite Democracy and other groups are really trying to position themselves for electoral um, uh, success, uh, starting to form political parties. But, of course, just like in Reclaim Australia, some of these political tendencies are also pose an incredible weakness. Um, the anti-lockdown movement is, you know, of course, facing extreme repression from police forces um, whenever they uh, break, COVID, um, break the public health regulations and uh, rally and so forth. Um, what, the, what impact that has is difficult to say at this stage, but we also know that police... Um, Crackdowns can radicalise, particularly those new and emerging activists, um, but it can also shrink the political space which the movement has to operate. Um, okay, thank you very much. Um, yeah, thanks, everyone. Um, I'm keen to get involved in discussions, but I'll, I'll leave it there in terms of um, directions and ways forward. All right. You're just listening to a speech by Anthony Kelly from the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, although representing himself in an individual capacity um, for that particular speech. Um, who were, he was speaking at a forum that took place on August the 24th, um, titled COVID-19 Pandemic, the State and the Far Right, and having a bit of a, giving a bit of an overview of some of the elements that have made um, this anti kind of lockdown movement in Australia. Now, before we have a we have our um, our first phone interview coming up in about five minutes. Um, but in the meantime, I wanted to sort of give um, a bit of a, a report on a positive actually news story that happened um, yesterday. Now, um, one of the one positive kind of development that has kind of happened in um, the past day has been that more than. 33 refugees have been released from detention across Australia. Um, this includes um, detention centres. Um, this includes detention centres in Darwin, Melbourne, um, like um, such as the Park Hotel in Carlton and Brisbane. And it was reported. Um, it, it, and I think this is, uh, I think, a very kind of, yeah, I think this is a very kind of positive kind of development. Um, there are some refugees who are getting settled um, in the United States for this, which is not necessarily the most kind of ideal kind of situation. In fact, in reality, they should be settled here. But I think it's overall, I think, a very kind of positive kind of development. And I think it's a testament to 
all the kind of great work that refugee activists have done over the years um, to, um, demanding the, um, the release and freedom of these refugees. Yeah, I think it's it's amazing news, really. I've only just sort of come across it. But um, like I think there are still over 90 refugees in detention, uh, but with 33 of them being released, that's you know, a good quarter of them. And they're obviously, there's, they're, they're being, that's, this is the, this is the end goal of putting, keeping the pressure up about this issue because it's, it's just been relentless, which is great throughout all, throughout the whole COVID situation. There've been protests. There's been like varying levels of safety, of course, but yeah, like the, the pressure has never relented just because there's another news story in the news. And I think that it's just become a bit of a headache for the government and they, it's, it's, the issue slided away for them and they're trying to, trying to quiet the issue down when people aren't really paying attention and, uh, just shuffle people out of there, which is, which is great. This is what we want. You know, <clears throat> obviously we don't want a massive, don't need to have a massive victory or rub it in their faces or anything like that, that, you know, we're actually making gains here, but it just shows keep up the pressure and there will be a point where it's just not, politically convenient for them to just keep people locked up in absolute prison conditions indefinitely and we've got to keep it up obviously they're not as jacob said they're not being resettled into the community permanently which is their whole um this is their whole policy but uh just having a bit of freedom is definitely really good it's great for everyone who's who's been affected and yeah just to note um about that i think yeah it is important to point out that for a lot of these refugees who are being released, they're only getting kind of like, um, they're only getting put on temporary visas or not necessarily visas that are that great. In fact, they're not given, they're not being made permanent um, residents or anything. And in fact, you know, the only justified compensation that the government, um, could be, um, giving to all the torture that they've, de- they've dealt onto these refugees is giving these refugees full, um, full citizenship. Oh, if, yeah. if they, opt, at, at if, they minimum. <laughs> if they opt for it, obviously, because not, I don't, I'm pretty sure not every single refugee wants, um, um, citizenship, but at, at the minimum, they should have at least the option of being, uh, allowed to become either permanent resident or citizen. You and, know them so much. And also they should be given, you know, full work rights, all the, all the kind of social benefits, etc. Like it's the only kind of, in fact, you know, the it's government. It's the only moral thing. In fact, the government could even go further. In fact, the government should be, um, owes actually these refugees millions of dollars in, in theory. Compensation, yeah. In compensation. Like that's just the extent of what the government has done to these refugees. And I think, you know, um, it's important, I think, as activists, um, we have to keep campaigning for, um, even with these refugees being released, we have to campaign and fight as yep. hard as we can um, to, um, for them to get social support and for their rights to, That's for them right. to receive rights. Yeah, it is, it's consistency and the, you can't, yeah, like these, these movements and these, these actions, they have, they have to go on for the long haul and that's what the refugee movement has been about, which is, it's so encouraging. Um, yeah, so it's really, it's really good to see this and hopefully we get some more out soon. Okay, well, I might just go, I'm, I'll play a quick, I'll play a quick announcement and we'll get on to the next part of our program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Mm-hmm. 
Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we have our first interview on the line right now. Just to give him a bit of an introduction, we have Graham Matthews, um, who is a person of disability and has been an NDIS participant since 2017. Um, Graham is also a member of um, Socialist Alliance, who has recently been part of developing policy for Socialist Alliance, which proposes an inclusive needs-driven national disability insurance scheme. And, of course, that is um, the, the outcome of that work is um, currently available to read on, on Green Left. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Graham. G'day, Jacob. How are you going? Oh, good. Now, I guess to kind of start our guest um, discussion, um, maybe can you tell us, I guess, what um, I guess some of the kind of urgent sort of issues has been that the federal Liberal government ha- is attempting to kind of implement a number of kind of proposals um, for the NDS um, that are attempting, in some ways, have been criticised by activists as undermining the NDIS. So what can you kind of tell us about what the federal Liberal government is attempting to do? Absolutely. The coalition government um, inherited NDIS. It was obviously set up by the, uh, the Gillard government back in 2013. It was rolled out nationally beginning in 2016 and they've always been uncomfortable with it. The idea of uh, giving money to people with disability um, as opposed to giving money to you know, major mining corporations, um, uh, large retailers or indeed large uh, graziers uh, is anathema to um, uh, Liberal National Party philosophy. So they've always been extremely uncomfortable with it. They've been quite happy to um, swipe money from NDIS. Um, in 2019, um, the, um, the Liberal government uh, took something in the order of $10 billion from an underspend from NDIS, which they used to patch up um, shortfalls elsewhere in their budget and uh, claim that they were 
headed towards a $7 billion um, surplus in 2020, which, of course, the um, the, the, the pandemic uh, upset that particular apple cart. But nevertheless, they were very happy to take money from NDIS uh, and to use it as a cash cow uh, before the, the program itself grew to maturity. But now that it's... Um, looking towards covering roughly 500,000 people with uh, severe and permanent disability, excuse me, by 2024, the, the government's now claiming that the, uh, the, the, the scheme is unaffordable uh, and needs to be trimmed back uh, in order to uh, make it sustainable in the long term. So they're, they're looking to introduce a number of measures. Uh, we can talk about those, but um, to, which will fundamentally undermine the, um, the the universality and um, the comprehensive nature of NDIS. Hmm. Well, um, maybe getting to kind of, I guess, um, an, a kind of another kind of question. I mean, yeah, we can definitely go into some of the specific details, but I guess, I mean, one of the things as well has been that. Um, in terms of this kind of rollback of um, the NDIS by the federal Liberal government, we've. Um, you, um, you yourself have actually also written kind of a lot of criticisms for Green Left, um, criticising um, the NDIS inherently in terms of its um, market-based service delivery model. And I guess, what can you tell us, I guess, about some of those kind of general issues and how they can, um, how they impact on people with disabilities? In terms of the the underpinning, uh, I suppose, philosophy of NDIS or its um it's, it's reason for being. Um, it was brought in by the, um, the Gillard government, as I said, in 2013 with quite a lot of fanfare, the NDIS Act, the idea being that it would uh, give people with disability greater choice and control over their, um, their, their supports. Um, but underlying that has always been an attempt, as you say, to uh, put disability funding on a market system. And in fact cut costs. It's really, um, this is not about um, uh, giving people with disability necessarily greater control or greater funding overall, but really attempting to use the market to cut costs for government. Um, it has three fundamental problems. The first is that um, uh, a marketised system where, where the, uh, the, the mighty dollar, where profit really rules, tends to squeeze out community-based um, providers. So um, uh, whether it be um, not-for-profits um, or indeed community-run services, we saw an example of that with um, uh, just recently with a community-run um, non-profit organisation uh, going to the wall uh, under NEIS and unable to um, compete with some of the large uh, for-profit um, enterprises. It's also what is euphemistically called by economists market failure. And this is particularly in uh, regional remote areas where in many cases there is no choice for, for persons with disability. There is only one provider. And in certain cases, there's absolutely no providers. So NDIS demands that the government step in in those circumstances and actually ensure that people with disability are provided with uh, the services that they need for a dignified life. And the third aspect to it is really the um, when the profit motive comes into play, then you have, um, in some cases, quite unscrupulous uh, 
providers um, and owners of disability businesses attempting to drive down uh, their costs in order to maximise their profit. And one of the, um, the easiest ways that they find to do this, obviously disability care in particular, is a very labour-intensive uh, process. Um, so the, the, the key way they attempt to do this is by driving down the cost of wages uh, at the expense of um, the people who actually uh, provide the care themselves, the disability workers, which is not only um, uh, leading to the fact of, of, of disability being one of the lowest paid industries in Australia, it's also leading to a, a, a looming shortage of disability workers uh, as people pursue other, other options rather than getting into disability work. Even um, aged care, which is notoriously poorly paid, uh, generally speaking, there is greater security and better pay than there is for disability workers, and this is completely unacceptable. Hmm. And um, we have a bit of time to probably, before we go into, I guess, the, um, the kind of next question, I kind of wanted to, you alluded to this uh, before, but um, what can you, I guess, tell us about some of these particular measures that the Liberal government is trying to introduce to the NDIS and why we should be opposed to them? I suppose the key one, which there was quite a lot of um, press about in the last few months, is what Bruce Bonhady, who was the former, um, the, the inaugural head of the National Disability Insurance Agency, so the government body that runs the uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme, described as robo-planning. Uh, this is the idea of bringing, so, bringing in so-called independent assessments where um, uh, an applicant for NDIS or indeed a participant um, who's having their plan reviewed uh, has to spend up to three hours with an allied health professional that they've never met before. Um, so it could be like a, a, an occupational therapist, it could be a physiotherapist, it could even be a speech pathologist. Um, they will ask them a series of yes or no questions um, and then get them to perform uh, some fairly menial and, and one might say rather ridiculous tasks like um, it's been described as peeling a vegetable or indeed taking out the bin. Um, that allied health professional will then uh, make a decision. It's not even a recommendation, it's a decision on how disabled this person is and what scale of funding they should receive from NDIS. Now, that's, as I said, been described as robo-planning. There was um, implacable opposition from the disability community and um, the, the support system and advocacy system. And thankfully, that um, was defeated for the moment. Um, it was designed to save the federal government something in the order of $700 million over four years, but they have said they put that on the shelf for the moment. So they haven't said uh, that they've totally withdrawn that. All they've said is that they will put that uh, put that aside for the moment. But um, uh, many of us uh, fear that uh, should this government win re-election, um, then this will be back on the table again. And in fact, there'll be further attempts to cut, um, to, to bring in this kind of robo-planning. Robo There's also... The uh, Saturday paper um, did some research, and in fact the nine newspapers as well, and the, uh, the, the Liberal government, the Federal government, particularly um, when it was under the, the Minister was Stuart Robert, uh, were looking at uh, making changes to the NDIS Act, which as I said was brought in by the Gillard government in 2013, 
and particularly changing Section 34. Now, many participants in of NDIS will be very aware of Section 34. It's the, the section of the Act that brings in the reasonable and necessary clause um, that's, that states that every support received by a participant needs to be reasonable and necessary. Now, this has been used uh, quite liberally by um, NDIS to actually restrict uh, the scale of people's plans uh, and even uh, turn down uh, quite um, necessary and reasonable applications on the basis that they're not value for money, which is one of the uh, the, the, the strictures included in, in uh, Section 34. Nevertheless, the Liberal government wants to change the applicability of that. Under current um, the current legislation, the, um, the, the federal court has found that um, should a participant be, be able to show that, in fact, um, what they need is reasonable and necessary for a dignified life, that NDIS must fund it, uh, irregardless of the cost. Now, NDIS, the government, has not appreciated this, so they intend to manipulate Section 34. So rather than being applied to any particular um, support request, that it actually be applied so reasonable and necessary be applied to a participant's budget as a whole, which, again, is a, a looming cost-cutting measure which could see um, everybody's plan cut significantly and um, there be caps placed on how much uh, funding uh, participants may receive. All right. Well, the next kind of question, and I think the most kind of important one, um, is you kind of, you kind of like, Ray, you've kind of pointed out all the kind of different particular issues, I guess, with the NDIS, but you've also pointed out that all the issues that uh, the federal Liberal government is kind of trying to implement to actually make it worse. And I guess um, you and several others were kind of part of um, developing um, the recent sort of adopted policy, I guess, for Socialist Alliance on um, on the NDIS. And as part of developing this policy, it makes a kind of argument that the framework for disability care provision must be decided by people with disability themselves. And I guess, what does such a framework look like? And what are some of the practical measures that Socialist Alliance has adopted in terms of policy to actually address um, this question? I think that thank you for asking that. I think it's a really key question. Um, as any person with disability knows, this society is not structured to meet our needs. Um, every time we attempt to access the, the community, we're confronted by obstacles, whether it's something as banal as a, a hard curb, uh, which we can't get down with our wheelchair, or indeed um, I'm a prosthetic user, so it's more difficult um, to, to traverse uneven ground, whether it's stairs um, with a ramp being either non-existent or, or hidden around corners or, or otherwise um, uh, relatively inaccessible, um, whether it's simply the, um, the, the, uh, the difficulty of accessing public transport um, and the, uh, the, the, the petty humiliations that um, people with disability face on a daily basis uh, in terms of accessing society. So our first key demand is that um, all... <coughs> excuse me... All buildings, all facilities be made uh, 100% accessible and that this is a key demand. Um, we argue that um, private uh, for-profit organisations should not receive public funding. Uh, NDIS and indeed the funding 
of um, uh, people with disabilities should not be about lining the, um, the, the pockets of private providers and creating so-called NDIS millionaires. We argue for a full uh, democratisation of the governance of NDIS or indeed of a, a disability funding service and particularly that people with disability uh, be included in the majority in that government. So we're calling for a board uh, largely composed of people with disability and their, uh, their, their families uh, which meets and actually sets policy for NDIS on an annual basis and that be binding on um, the, 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 the disability provider itself uh, and that eligibility not be restricted to a medical model uh, but actually be guided by self-assessment. Um, so rather than, um, OK, well, you're only um, you know, 3% disabled uh, according to this chart, therefore you don't get NDIS funding, whereas you're 5% uh, disabled, so uh, you do, which is an absurd system, an absurd and exceedingly um, uh, discriminatory system, which we totally reject. We argue that um, uh, assessment for services and equipment should be based on uh, a person's self-assessment and needs and oppose any attempt to um, uh, categorise workers as uh, domestic um, or otherwise so um, that their, their wages can be cut. We um, also want to ensure that um, NDIS is equitable right across all states and, in fact, all areas. One of the points I raised earlier was the, the fact that um, for many of those living in remote and uh, regional communities, there simply is no choice offered by NDIS. Uh, there is only one provider, uh, if any. Uh, and in many cases, um, there is no provider at all. And we totally reject that and demand that the government plug those gaps and ensure that the same uh, services and choice which are offered uh, people lucky enough to live in the city, like myself, are offered to those who are uh, li living uh, in remote and regional areas as well. All right. Well, um, we're kind of running a bit out of time, um, Graham, but if you have any... Um, you've given us like a really sort of fantastic kind of overview. And I guess if you have um, any kind of final comments you'd like to make, um, yeah, feel free to make them. I think um, just the last two points I would make is that uh, NDIS should be extended to those uh, aged over 65. Currently, if you're under 60, sorry, if you're under 65, you can access NDIS and, in fact, uh, remain covered by it once you... Uh, age beyond 65, but if you're 65 in one day, uh, you can't access NDIS. And in fact, um, you can be stuck on the, the very limited state systems which will require co-payments. Uh, the second issue is that um, there should be no means testing. There is currently no means testing for NDIS, but it is the only uh, state or federal um, funding uh, uh, welfare uh, payment which is not means tested in some form and uh, we completely reject that um, people's uh, uh, income or indeed assets should be the basis of that, whether they receive uh, NDIS funding or not. All right. Well, thank you very much, Graham. No, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Jacob. Okay. All right. Um, we're just having a discussion with Graham Matthews, um, who is a person of disability and member of Social Alliance, and we just had a bit of um, a bit of a discussion about a discussion about 
the NGIS, um, what are the um, the issues with the NGIS, and also what an alternative um, to the NDIS could look like in terms of generally kind of supporting people of disabilities. And just to give a bit of a plug, you can read the full um, kind of policy sort of platform that Socialist Alliance has sort of adopted in regards to the NDIS by looking at um, going onto the Green Left kind of website. Um, and, yeah, you can find um, the article kind of there for kind of more information as a kind of a bit of a reference, which I think gives a pretty good sort of framework of kind of different sort of demands that are the alternative. Now, just for the meantime, I'll just play um, a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and now it is time to for the activist calendar. Now, as kind of usual, because of lockdown conditions, um, all the events I'm going to sort of advertise are all happening online. Now, the only issue is there's actually not that many events actually happening at the moment, but I think there are a number of kind of interesting sort of um, discussions and forums that I'd like to highlight. Now, the first one I want to sort of highlight is um, tomorrow from 2pm, there's going to be an online forum organised by Green Left titled A Left Perspective on the US's Withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, this will be quite an interesting kind of forum. Um, basically, it looks um, it, we're gonna, there's going to be a number of international kind of speakers. Um, if you look up on the Green Left website, you can get the details on how to link into the meeting and so on. But just to let you know about um, the different types of speakers that the um, forum will be featuring, it will be featuring US socialist Malik Mia, um, who is um, a regular Green Left uh, US correspondent. We have Farooq Tariq, who is a veteran Pakistani socialist. And then we have Riz Wok, who is a former Hazara refugee. And then, and then we have Sue Bolton, um, Socialist Alliance councillor, Moreland and refugee rights activists. Um, so yeah, that should be um, a, a interesting kind of event. And I definitely kind of recommend um, getting along to it. And 
tomorrow, um, on Sunday, not Sunday, not tomorrow, um, on Sunday, there's going to be another um, particular event um, happening, and that is there's going to be um, an online rally um, for which is part of um, World Refugee Day. So it's it's a rally for refugee rights, permanent visas, not discrimination. This was intended to be an in-person sort of rally, but obviously because of COVID, it's um, it can't be. So that's going to be an online rally now from 2 p.m. Um, and you can get the Zoom link by checking the Refugee Action Collective. Um, um, page. And the other thing to sort of just note and highlight is um, there is going to be a number of sort of online sort of events um, at the Melbourne Writers Festival, which I think is um, supposed to be starting next next month in September, early in September. And so there's kind of a number of sort of interesting sort of topics that are going to be happening. Like, for example, um, there's going to be a for, um, uh, event on Australia, Australia's Assange and WikiLeaks. We're going to have dark, uh, there's going to be, a, I think, a talk by Bruce Pascoe on dark email and the art of um, time travel. There's going to be a discussion on the end of detention. Um, there's going to be uh, one on secret spies and whistleblowers. Now, I think you'll have to go check out the Melbourne Writers Face um, Festival, um, face, um, not Facebook page, their website to get a bit of sense of all the kind of different talks that are going to be happening. But, yeah, just sort of just give a bit of a plug because um, that appears to be what's um, happening um, in terms of um, events. Um, so, yeah, um, the last thing I kind of want to mention is, um, you know, Green Left and Free CR relies on your support to keep us going. So I definitely recommend if you support, like what we say on this program and want to give us support, I definitely recommend becoming a Green Left supporter. At um, by, You can become a supporter for as low as $5 a month or $10 a month at greenleft.org.au forward slash support. And also want to give a bit of a plug to supporting Free CR, the, the station that brings this pro- um, program to air. You can also give donations to Free CR by going on to freecr.org. Now, I'll just play um, a quick announcement. Um, You're listening to Green Left Radio. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our second interview for the program, we're going to be covering, um, this is a bit of a debate, um, a debatable topic, but we're going to be covering um, the topic of the question of mandatory vaccinations. Um, there's been kind of a lot of talk about it in the media. And so we have Zita Henderson, um, who is a, 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 a nurse and a regular union uh, and a union activist and has been a very active in, in campaigning. And um, Zita just recently wrote an article for Green Left on the question of, the, of mandatory vaccinations, on, on whether, you know, 
addressing the topic on whether whether the left or as a healthcare worker she, um, you should support a mandatory vaccination. So I'm just going to go, good morning, Zita, and I'll just go pass it on to Felix because Felix was going to sort of, um, our other presenter was going to ask the questions. Hey, Zita, how are you going? Thanks for coming online. Oh, Zita, sorry about that. Uh, do we have you there? Yeah, I'm here. Great. Thanks for coming on the program. Um, so just to start the discussion, uh, from the healthcare, from the perspective of a healthcare worker, what is your, what's your opinion on the question of mandatory vaccinations being imposed in workplaces? I know this is a, this is obviously going to become a massive issue, I think, over the next few months. So very interesting to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah. So within healthcare itself, at the moment, it's only mandated for residential aged care workers, which is very similar to the flu vaccine that everyone has to get every year if you work in that area. Um, so it's not really mandated in other areas of healthcare, including looking after the elderly or vulnerable in their own homes, but it is highly encouraged, like COVID is, for all healthcare workers. And I personally would strongly encourage anyone working in healthcare to get the vaccine. But I wouldn't put a across-the-board mandate on because I think it could be counterproductive for some people. Um, they may feel their, their freedoms are being impinged on. And also the way this particular mandate for aged care workers has been rolled out it's caused a great deal of stress for those workers in that area because even though they are a priority group, for some people it's not been easy to access because of either supply or their location. Um, and it's also um, certainly not facilitated any of the workers to go and get the vaccine um, during work time. They've all had to do it in their own time. Um, and there was no, there was a lot of these residential aged care um, places were worried that all their staff would go and get the vaccine at once. And then a lot of people have developed side effects post the vaccine and had one or two days where they'd been unwell. And that would mean large numbers of staff being sick and not being able to come to work at the same time. That's ironic. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's... I, mean, I personally don't agree with the mandate, but I do encourage, I think it's a good thing to get the vaccine, but I wouldn't encourage a mandate. You know, um, yeah, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's just in healthcare. I mean, I mean, I, you can see that it's reasonable that they have done so for those vulnerable groups in residential aged care. But as far as other workplaces where... Um, health isn't an issue really um no definitely not <laughs> yeah do you, so is it mainly the healthcare workplaces that have uh grappled with this question or do you know if there are other sort of workplaces like obviously we've heard about Qantas making an announcement yeah like yeah. Are, do you have a sort of sense of what different workplaces um you know how what their response to this question is and also like I'd be interested to know what the union's perspective on this is well, that's, that's uh, good because the unions have really, across the board, have um, not agreed with mandatory vaccinations. 
rather they would rather go the way of supporting uh, and encouraging workers to get the vaccine in their own time and providing education to their workers about the vaccine, um, um, supporting them by um, having paid time off to get the vaccine and also paid leave if they get symptoms post the vaccine. So, like, uh, and I know the ACTU are advocating for <coughs> paid leave, um, paid vaccine leave, and paid time for the vac- to get the vaccine as well. Um, uh, rather than this, you know, going down the road of uh, punitive measures if their workers don't get the vaccine or anything, that's the wrong wrong tack to take. I feel. <coughs> so the unions are pretty much on board with with that idea. But the employers, obviously, you can you can understand why they want to get their workplaces reopened as quickly as possible. But they're really not taking into account their workers' needs. They're not. A lot of workplaces are not doing the right thing by their workers in regards to providing a safe workplace. Um, I mean, we only saw the example of the coal warehouse. Sydney a couple of weeks ago now um, that was uh, written up in Green Left as well. So, um, and until we can get that right, I mean, and until we can get the supply right, the question of mandating everyone is, is pretty moot because we're all struggling to get supply now. Well, one of the kind of, um, I'm just going to come in with a bit of a, uh, a kind of question and a sort of discussion kind of point, um, is I guess, I mean, just from, um, my kind of, um, observations, um, in the context, I think of a lot of the kind of things you said, I think it is like, I mean, it is quite clear that any sort of talk of mandating, um, um, vaccine mandates is actually in some sense almost like the government taking a kind of easy way out, like basically essentially absolving themselves of kind of any kind of responsibility because in actual fact, the real issue isn't necessarily this sort of fringe group of growing sort of anti-kind of um, vaxxers. The actual issue is the fact that the government is failing at actually providing the infrastructure to actually get for people to actually be supported to be able to get the vaccines. Because essentially there's all these sort of approaches that the government could be taking to increase the take-up of the vaccines. Why aren't they opting for that? And I think that's, I think, an important kind of question. I guess the other side, though, of the kind of debate, though, is um, one of the kind of comments that sort of Scott Morrison kind of brought up in almost in response, and I think you sort of mentioned it in your sort of article, is basically there's a bit of, I would imagine there's a sort of other side for the government, even though I just criticised the government for implementing mandatory kind of vaccines, there would be a certain uh, element that the government wouldn't want to implement mandatory vaccines on the basis that they don't want to make um, bosses sort of accountable um, for the um, for the health of their workers. And I guess... That's what, an interesting point. <laughs> um, what are sort of the, like... You know, in terms of responding to both those sort of lines of argument, what what are the kind of things we should be putting the pressure on the bosses to actually take responsibility um, for actually increasing the vaccine right, but also um, making sure that workplaces are safe and COVID free? Yeah, you're completely right, Jacob. In, the, in that, it's you know the <clears throat> the federal government have completely abrogated responsibility 
um, about the whole vaccine issue and really no dumps it on the individual. It's your responsibility. You go and get it. And um, and then the employers are, 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 are been advocating um, for, for a while now to for the government to mandate the vaccine so that they can get the place reopened as soon as possible so that the economy can recover. <laughs> you know, it's not a question of health. It's more the economy. And um, so... Um, in regards to what you were saying, it, it, and, and on top of that as well, um, Scott Morrison has come out and said that his government will not uh, go down the route of mandatory vaccines for everyone um, because um, he feels it, um, he, he's sort of stymied by the sort of right-wing conservatives on in his own party who sort of advocate for freedoms and things like that. And he's sort of um, held back by that. But also, he's, he's just wanting to put the responsibility on the employers who really haven't seen a clear pathway um, to do this for some sections of the workforce. And I don't think the Fair Work Ombudsman's report or advisory that came out a couple of weeks ago on this and basically tiered workers into four different tiers um, really helped the situation because, it, again, it's very unclear for that group of workers who may work in retail or hospitality and have uh, maybe direct face-to-face -face contact with the public um, where their employers can also mandate them, them to be vaccinated. Um, but it's a sticky road and, it, and the law is very unclear on it as well. I've, I really find this quite a fascinating question. Like, I know that there's a lot of debate about this on the left and I think there's, as you were just saying, there's a lot of debate on it on the right as well. So it sort of cuts mm. across the left-right divide. Mm. And like, I, I can't help but think that the idea of mandatory vaccinations is, is a very, um, I don't know how to put it, like... Uh, you know, settler colonial attitude that Australia has to just, you know, not to, like, there's obviously a lot of work, community work that can go into ensuring everybody has access to the vaccines and is safe and is getting the best, you know, being looked after by the, the community as much as possible mm. with the resources that it needs. Obviously, we could be doing that, but instead we take the shortcut to just, you know, have a rule and let the police sort it out mandatory vaccinations. That's from, that's from the, man, the mandation coming from the state. So there's a big question about that. But then on the other side, whether or not you put the power into businesses in order to allow their workers to, you know, to police their workers for getting vaccinated sort of becomes an industrial issue as well. And then on it the does, one hand, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the one hand, it's like the libertarian question, as you were saying, um, you know, the freedom to get vaccinated or not vaccinated. And on the other hand, there's whether or not businesses, you know, want to be get a, get ahead by being given the tools from the top to just force everybody to get a vaccine so that they can continue making as much money as possible. You know, so many different angles to this. And there is, yeah. yeah. Well, just to jump in just quickly because we're running a bit out of time. Maybe to go, I'll make this sort of the last kind of question. I think because I think everything Felix was saying sort of leading to this final point. Um, what um what are 
Zita, in terms of like just concluding this interview, what can you tell us about what are some of the solutions that workplaces and governments can be implementing, like in the here and now, to actually increase the take up of the vaccine without resorting to core, core what's the word? Uh, d- yeah, I know the word. Uh, you're- mandated <laughs> um, um, without um, going for mandated um, <laughs> mandated vaccine um, vaccines in workplaces. So yeah, just want to hear yeah, that yeah, your coercion. coercion, coercion. That's it. Yes, <laughs> got that. So um, both myself and the majority of the unions want, um, you know, and want and highly encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, they just don't want to be mandated to do so. So their solution is to provide um, lots of education to their members, support. They want this paid leave. Um, and they also are advocating for employer and employee cooperation. So not only, you know, to talk together about what their workplace can do and do it collectively, rather than it being um, imposed on on the workers. So not only does the employer have an obligation to provide a COVID-safe workplace in regards to uh, access to hand hygiene and um, uh, 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 distancing and um, safe handling, um, but they also should be consulting with their workers about, you know, um, how are we going? Can I give you uh, maybe support them to go off site um, during work time, or maybe call it, get in a pop up vaccine clinic so that the workers can be vaccinated on site? Um, you know that sort of thing, rather than this punitive um, top down measures that some some employers are um, mandating. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I think it. That that is a nuanced sort of take on the things. I think that before we can get to the question, of, I think this is my opinion. But uh, mandation of vaccines might become necessary in some circumstances and at some stage. So definitely not excluding that. But there's so much that we can be doing. Everything that you've just suggested, like there's a lot of work that we can be doing. That that just it's, that should be what's at front of mind right now. That's what we should be demanding from the community, from workplaces, from the government, they should put in resources and mobilise people and the community in order to bring up vaccinations and also just implement all these health measures that we should have been doing from the start. I mean, why, why, aren't we, why haven't we got access to the rapid testing kits that they're using now in Europe and in the UK? I mean, that these tests give you a result... Uh, pretty much on the spot. So we could be doing this with workers. You know, we could be um, um, facilitating workers to get their vaccine instead of punishing them and... and yeah, we love to punish. ...sacking them, you know. And, and this whole police response in New South Wales particularly and to a certain extent in Victoria is just um, just not the right way to be going. We should be having people out there from the healthcare industry um, talking to people as they're going into the supermarket um, and encouraging people to get their vaccine, not punishing people and fining people. It's very condescending, isn't it? No, it's very condescending, (laughs) yeah. Anyway. 
Well, um, thank you very much, um, Zita. I'm um, sorry to cut sorry. you off, um, kind of there, but we're running out of time. Um, we've got to end this kind of program kind of now. But yeah, thank you very much for no being worries. on our program. It's been actually a very kind of useful kind of discussion, I think, um, covering a kind of topic that I think is not necessarily actually being debated in, I think, a serious way in the mainstream media. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for bringing up all those issues. Well, thank you thanks, very much, guys. Zita. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you. Okay, so we're just um, speaking to Zita Henderson, um, who is a healthcare worker and um, and also a nurse, um, who is an active union um, delegate and um, and has just recently written an article um, for Green Left on the question of mandatory vaccinations, which was what we were discussing um, with her on for our program. Now, I'd like to... Um, just going to give a bit of, um, I just want to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, we're getting into the end of the program. And, um, yeah, stay tuned for, I think, a rerun of Earth Matters, which I think is coming, um, shortly after this. But yeah, like to thank all our listeners. Stay safe while we're, while you're in lockdown. Um, get the COVID-19 vaccine if you haven't gotten it yet. Um, there's lots of vaccination hubs, um, being opened right now in, Melbourne. Yeah, watch uh, out for the queues. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly um, what now that 18 to 39-year-old are eligible for Pfizer, I've seen queues stretch for hundreds of metres. Yeah, so be careful with the queues. Make sure you stay socially distanced <laughs> while you're in the queues. But, yep, um, um, that's what I'm going to do. Um, thank you all our listeners, and you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. Thanks for joining us. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1800 634 206. Arise you workers from the slumbers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise! We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back, reds underneath your beds and that...